to Driving the Narrative, Women in Architecture, a podcast by SB Architects. I'm your host, Jeanette Hoffman. Throughout this series, I'll be delving deeper into what it means to be a woman in architecture. Today's guest is a founding member of the feminist design collective, WIB Collaborative. Her focus is design as a social practice, working with community groups and advocates to respond to the lived experiences and cultural histories of a place. Working primarily in the public realm, her studio is a collaborative practice focused on how cultures, histories, and systems of power and politics are represented or erased in space. Through site-specific performances and installations, Roberts addresses themes of democracy, spatial justice, historic preservation, and identity in a way that's widely accessible to the public. Well, hello, Ms. Barney, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good. Welcome back. Thank <laughs> Welcome you. Welcome back to the, to the world of SB Podcast. Um, we're so glad to have you. And just tell me a little bit about you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's so great to talk with you and um, really excited about this conversation. Um, so my name is Bryony Roberts, and I have a design and research practice called Bryony Roberts Studio in New York City. Um, I'm also a co-founder of a feminist collaborative called WIP Collaborative, yes. also in New York. Um, but my own practice, we uh, we really focus on doing community-based projects in the public realm, um, and it kind of bridges between art and architecture and historic preservation. Um, and we do a lot of experiments with materials as well, so trying to create interactive, participatory, and fun environments. We would love to just kind of hear a little bit about your background. I know a lot of people at our office are familiar with the GSAT program, but um, talk about what you teach, kind of how you got started just in architecture in general, because your journey is, I think, super interesting. And what you do every day is super, super interesting. And I hope everyone on this podcast, I don't want to give anything away before she kind of talks about what she does, but I hope everyone on this podcast goes and checks out Bryony's website and her firm because it's top-notch and something totally different than what we're used to. So with that being said, please uh, introduce yourself and tell us about you. Sure. Well, thank you so much for this invitation too. I'm really excited about this conversation. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm originally from Los Angeles. Um, I actually come from a family of architects. So my parents and my grandparents are architects. Um, so I actually wanted nothing to do with architecture for <laughs> most of As my we all do, like my family's doctors, and I'm like nothing to do with that, please. But yeah. here you are. <laughs> <laughs> so childhood and young adulthood, I went in every other direction, but I sort of did everything around architecture, mm-hmm. you know, art, writing, um, sociology, um, history. And really pursued um, art pretty seriously. So um, installations, performance, painting. Um, and I I worked in New York at some museums after I graduated from college and pursued an art practice and did sort of art criticism. Um, but then I felt the pull of architecture <laughs> kind of drawing me back. And I think in particular is interested in how architecture, it's this way of thinking about the world that's so multiscalar and interdisciplinary. And it's just a way of engaging politics and people and place all at the same time. And I knew that I wanted all of those things to inform what I was making. So I I drifted back <laughs> to the fold, um, went to Princeton for my master's 
And, but I, I kind of always knew I wanted a different type of practice. I think having seen um, these examples in my family of, um, you know, residential, commercial, institutional practices, um, I, I wanted something that was political, that was very community-based, um, experimental in terms of materials. So kind of working between art and architecture, always experimenting with different ways of making. Um, and so I've been teaching for um, 12 years now um, and I kind of have found this balance of teaching and practice where being part of the academic world, it's this chance to sort of explore new ideas and be constantly learning from my students and my peers and being in this kind of, um, you know, heady, inspiring environment. And then having my own practice where I'm, um, you know, constantly exploring different ways of, of working in the world. So um, I, I feel like the, the balance between the two must be so interesting because the thing I loved about school was how just inspiring everything was. So you felt like everything was a possibility in school. Nobody was telling you no as far as possibilities go. And then yeah. you kind of come out into the real world and it's very, it feels a little stifling. So like, and, but you want to keep pushing boundaries. You don't, when people tell you no, you want to be the person that keeps going, well, why not? Well, why not? You know? And so I feel like the balance you have between this sort of inspiring environment in school and this work environment is really nice. I I, I would imagine that that feels pretty good. It's really meaningful. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot to juggle on like a daily. I was about to say, or sometimes very <laughs> overwhelming. <laughs> you it's have to like switch your brain gear a lot, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And and every student is like, you know, a personal relationship. So there's a lot of people yeah. that then you're sort of thinking about and worried about. Um, so it's it does, you know, there's a lot of things rattling around in my brain. Um, but it is really meaningful. And I feel like it's it's the way that I can kind of keep learning in life. Um, and keeps you so. passionate, it seems. I mean, just when you talk about it, you can definitely, your passion radiates for it. Um, your dad was, y'all talked to, you said, I remember you telling me, you talked about politics a lot in the home or social justice, mm -hmm. different things like that. So the combination, I think what's so interesting about you, because like I told you before, I've never seen this. Like, I mean, in a good way, where it has this beautiful combination of art and your and your exhibits are really like art exhibits um, from your contours to everything on your website to social justice. And then somehow marry, I don't even know how you do it, but marrying <laughs> all of those into one in architecture and making them jive, making them make sense is really, really inspiring and really cool. What? Oh, thank you. Did you ever feel like somebody was kind of telling you you know, this isn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. How are you going to make a career of this? Like, how did mm -hmm. you kind of push and pull the, the sort of reality of what you could make work in the real world versus, you know, this sort of bigger picture imaginative view? Yeah, constantly. I mean, I, I still get that feedback yeah. a lot. Um, and I, um, and I worry about like how to sustain all of this going forward. Cause it's, it is tough having a sort of unconventional, um, business model. Um, but I think that, um, you know, I, I think there is a model of like a more experimental practice and having an academic life. I think that's something that I am familiar with, but I also learn from people who are doing, there's sort of a growing world of like community-based design practice and community-based public art practice 
And really, it's sort of this new territory that people are figuring out a way to build these self-sustaining practices, either they're nonprofits or they're for-profit. But I think it helps that there's like a growing, I mean, not to use too much economics lingo, but like there is a growing market for work that is, you know, aware of place and community. And um, I find that in, you know, in working with like city governments and arts commissions in different parts of the country that people realize that they, they can't just like drop a project in a place and expect it to really work. Um, That they, that everyone is going to (laughs) benefit if there's like more engagement from the beginning and like more of a relationship between the kind of political issues that are going on and the creative work that's being made. So I feel like there is more and more um, interest and like support for that work. And so it does seem more viable than maybe even five, 10 years ago to like do absolutely a practice that kind of merges them. I don't know if that really answered your question. No, that does answer my question. I think that you're both extremely relevant with your firm and ahead of your time, which is both the scary and, but the good, right? Like, And by ahead of your time, I mean, like, you're going to be the one paving the pathway for how we do this, how we create, like, more inclusive architecture, which is, to me, I don't know, scary, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but, um, you know, really inspiring. And um, I think that the world is catching up to you, the world should be catching up to you. So you're going to be the person that's sort of setting that standard. And so you're kind of creating it as you go. But um, I can totally understand how it can be, you know, you're, you're constantly out there trying to see how people can engage and then other people coming back to you. I bet the best, I mean, it seems like the most rewarding part would be when people come back and want to re-engage or pick up a project mm-hmm. with you. Right. So could you give us an example of like a typical project you're working on or one you've done in the past? Has it been specifically consulting or an exhibit that you've done? Just because I'm a little bit more familiar because I've been looking at your website and talking to you a little bit, but give us like a day in the life of um, Bryony at, at the firm. <laughs> Um, let's see, uh, so many different things that could share them all. It's all interesting. um, (laughs) I mean, I think my favorite project still is the project I did in Columbus, Indiana, um, for exhibit Columbus, which was a little bit unusual in that it was a, it was kind of like a biennial model. So it wasn't a project for, um, you know, a client in, uh, the city or you know cultural institution um but it was it was one of my favorites because I felt really satisfied with both the community engagement and also the like material experimentation and the sort of design experimentation so um basically I was asked to do a project at the city hall um which is a building by SOM from the 80s and you know Columbus Indiana is this sort of famous architectural mecca mm-hmm. it has all these beautiful modernist buildings um and a really lovely downtown that Alexander Gerard helped to sort of do the colors for but everything is very small scale kind of one story and then the city hall is this imposing um building that's kind of elevated above the street has this very blank facade um and nobody really hangs out there it's not it's not an active civic space um and so very you know, dominating was, presence in this, yeah, yeah yeah which often government buildings you know are are purposeful right it's yeah. pretty purposeful 
So I wanted to sort of question that being the image of government and of like civic space. And, and I was asked to make it more active and, and engaging. Um, and so I basically, first I wanted to learn, well, what actually happens there? What is the community life of this place? And I found that there were a bunch of organizations that did have events there or protests. So you had both, um, you know, like the the firefighters and the policemen would have these sort of grand ceremonies outside um, on this plaza and on the lawn. And then you would also have protesters who would come sort of like um, left leaning protesters sort of on issues of immigration and everything else. Um, and then there were sort of community groups, so performances, dance groups. And so I basically tried to understand the sort of social ecology of the place and then ask all those people what they wanted to see there, like what would be an improvement to the space and sort of gathered all this input, did all these interviews and, and from that sort of identified that there was a need for spaces to hang out that would serve kind of day to day life, but also spaces that would really allow for collective gathering and a kind of civic presence that would be about the people and not just about this monument. Um, and so that's what the project tried to do. And it was sort of riffing on the geometry of the building, which was really fun. So there's a sort of whole formal geometric exploration to it. Um, and then in terms of the materials to create this sort of welcoming, inviting atmosphere, um, I worked with this textile workshop and we created these huge hand oh, woven <laughs> panels that were truly insane. When I think back on it, it was so much labor and so much time. Um, but it was basically these macrame panels that were at the scale of this monumental building. So they were stretched between these custom steel frames and they sort of encircled the plaza and then went down onto the lawn and they became places to rest and hang out. But they also became backdrops for these more sort of grand collective um, gatherings. And it was just it was such a fun um, material experiment. It was the first time any of us working on that project had done that. And so, you know, there was a lot of um, unknown. Um, and, you know, and it also for me kind of helped move forward an interest I've been working on a lot, which is an interest in, um, in textiles and in these sort of craft traditions that have been historically gendered as female and part of domestic space but that I think have so much potential in public space to really shift the tone and make a place that feels welcoming and inviting and familiar um, so that public spaces aren't these imposing, intimidating, kind of alienating spaces, but they feel like home. Um, and that is something that I've been playing with a lot sort of since then. So before, a little bit before, and then even more since then. What what gave you the idea to think of textiles? I mean, I understand the fact that you tapped into this is typically a very female dominated thing, but what, I mean, was it just one day you're sitting around going, that would be really cool to explore that because it's so interesting. I had done a little bit before. So I'd done a project at the Neutra house in Los Angeles that was with these cords and, um, I don't know. I feel like I've just always had this magnetic pull towards that material. Yeah. And I think more and more recently, I've just given myself permission to like go all in. <laughs> go big. 
go big or go home. The scale yeah. of, of the Civic Center is so cool. And you can sit on it, right? There's mm-hmm. places where you can sit oh, yeah. on it and it touches down. And I mean, again, everyone listening to this, please go look. It's uh, Her website is amazing because it's just... I mean, how do you, there's no way you would walk past this place and not go sit on this or play around <laughs> or um, it, it's what's amazing about it. So th- is this a permanent exhibit? Is this, this something that's temporary? This was temporary. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, unfortunate because I want to go. <laughs> I know. I know. I wish we could have kept it. Um, but I'm doing my first public permanent project that's opening in uh, November of this year in Toledo, Ohio. So that had a similar kind of community-based process, um, but is totally different materials because it has to stay there forever. Um, so, so how does the material change once you realize it has to be fully sustainable for a long period of time? Yeah, so it's steel and glass basically, and oh, wow. they're smaller distributed um, pieces throughout a landscape. Um, so it was really kind of thinking through working with landscape more, uh, more directly and. Um, I mean, honestly, I would love to figure out a way to do textile projects that could be permanent and outdoor. <laughs> I think that's I like the next, the next thing um, that I then that I want to crack. Um, but um, you know, this has a sort of softness to the geometry to it, which I think was a way of, you know, even if it is made of hard materials, its presence in the landscape is um, very kind of like subtle and blends in in a way with. Um, the yeah the the plant life and the things that are there how do you when you're approaching these projects and you're talking to the community and or your client about what they want for this project how do you Mm -hmm. make sure that they're bringing speaking of inclusive like inclusive design how do you make Mm -hmm. sure that they're bringing everyone to the table that needs to be there is that something you ask or is that something you assume or do you kind of look around and and uh, um, assess the situation? How do you know? Because I mean, some communities are very inclusive and already have those people, you know, on staff and that would be at the table. Do you ever yeah. pay attention to that? Is that, I don't know if that's oh, a strange sure. question. Yeah, I mean, I talk about um, like my approach to design as a social practice. So for me, designing the process of the project is as important as designing yeah. the end result. And so, um, designing that process is is absolutely about figuring out like how can we bring everyone to the table or if it's a project about a very specific issue like if it's about gender or if it's about neurodiversity it's like well who are all the voices who really need to be here in order to show the kind of full range of these issues um and so I guess I'm lucky to work with clients who've been very interested in that so they they support. they're coming to you because they they're interested in this. Yeah, like, they didn't yeah. fall upon you by accident usually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So point. they sort of like support that process, and they may have some of those relationships already. And then like it's about seeing okay, what's there, and then what can we augment? What's missing? Um, you know who which community groups are not being reached. So there's a certain amount of research that has to happen just to like understand you know, that research I can do. And then I asked the the client to also figure out like, you know, to kind of figure out their broadest network um, of contacts that can can speak to the, the project. But I've been lucky to work with folks who really enable the engagement process. Like in Toledo, Ohio, this project, they've been super supportive and 
um, it's the Arts Commission of Toledo, so they already have a very public-facing presence, and um, and we're working in the Parks Department, so like the, everyone's really invested in like trying to have as much participation as possible, which has been great. That is pretty great, and I have you ever had anyone that isn't? Have you ever had a client, or I mean, you don't have to speak about yeah. specific client. Have you ever had a project where you know you felt like, oh wow, this is a little bit different than what we're used to. How do we navigate this? I want to hear about that. <laughs> For That's sure. more our world. Yeah. Well, I think because <laughs> I, I want to know how be... help us navigate those kind of situations mm -hmm. at least. Yeah. I mean, I think it can be a real struggle, and I and for me, it's been. Um, I, I feel lucky that I find more and more clients that are supportive of this. But like in the beginning, when I was still trying to figure mm -hmm. out what it, what is it that I want to do? What is this? Yeah. You know, I sort of, um, I definitely had experiences with people who were like, I just want a pretty thing. Like, just make the pretty thing. <laughs> I don't care how it gets made or who's involved. Um, and I think that the, I mean, I'll get to your question, but like my little soapbox moment is that I think, unfortunately, these fields, these design fields are set up that way because often you have to pitch the design first, you know, before you get to do all this engagement you know a lot like competition models or like rfps like you have to show something that's pretty that's <laughs> such a good you point you talk to anyone and that's just never gonna that's never really gonna be inclusive or like rooted in place you know you have to like start with the conversations before you design right there's not that. really that interview process where like right. you get to actually interview the client too and talk yeah. to them about if what's important to you as a design firm or as a designer is as important to them mm -hmm. it's really more here these are all of our pretty things that we can make beautiful pick us yeah <laughs> and then yeah. but then you kind of figure out the client and the project process after that that's mm -hmm. i've never thought of it it's so true you don't really yeah. have that process of sort of evaluating the situation before you dive fully in. Usually you're, you've kind of dive, dove fully in by the yeah. time you get to kind of know the situation. Yeah. I mean, it's like you're up Schitt's Creek or you're, you're <laughs> <laughs> most of the time you're fine, but sometimes you're not. And, and then yeah. you go, okay, well, let's navigate this. It's sort of, it's not proactive. It's reactive, I guess. Is what yeah, totally. And it's point. a, and it's a model investment too, that, I mean, it's, you know, it makes, it makes sense that like clients, they want to just invest in the product of the building, right? Like it's a very kind of immediate um, result that they want. But like, if you think about the lifetime of a building or like a yeah. campus in particular, something that has like large urban presence, if you want this thing to really work, like you have to make sure that communities around it want it and care about it. And like, that people are going to maintain it and sustain it. So that like the longer term investment means it's worth spending time on community engagement. But for a lot of people, that longer term investment isn't important enough for them to like make time for it. Cause it does take money and time to dedicate like energy to engagement and interviews and research, you know? So I think it's a, um, there are many clients that don't want to do that. But I think there are ways of arguing that this is like in everyone's benefit, especially, you know, I mean, institutional clients, governments, like they really have a vested interest in communities being, you know, feeling a sense of ownership over the project. Um, so that's a good even, point. Even I mean, like, 
Well, like we do some consulting um, in this collaborative I'm a part of um, sometimes for uh, like even commercial developers who are, if they're building like a tower and it has a public realm area, they're very concerned about the public realm part having a meaningful presence, you know, in the city, partly because that's kind of the legal deal that they have is like they have they've made the with space. the city right right yeah um and so even I think in the private sector there is this there's some you know interest and awareness in, in that too but what were you gonna say and I don't remember but that's a good point I think that the products I've enjoyed the most have had probably the most city engagement where mm-hmm. um whether because of it the client wanted more uh, for the community and for it to be more sustainable and to have a reputation that they yeah. established this, this urban, you know, urban core that really helped engage in the community or bike path or whatever the pieces and parts might've been that just yeah. sort of build on the community and establish a place um, were a lot more enjoyable than typically sometimes we get a client that they're, they're going to sell this building in a couple of years. Right. And right. so that's really for them a return on investment. And I understand that aspect of it too. This is a, a product they're coming to us for and they want it to be delivered in a certain way and to sell in a certain amount of time. And mm-hmm. that's their job. But um, I think you're right that it takes it takes a level of um, discussion that maybe some people aren't always comfortable with or don't, just don't have time to do about mm-hmm. what kind of footprint do you want to leave on the community and how sustainable do you want it to be as far as do people want to maintain it? You know, you yeah. saying that has resonated with me so much is you can, I know immediately you can think of five buildings in your city that you love and that the community takes care of and keeps clean and goes to visit and the kids go play and you go eat lunch, but there's not lunch left everywhere. You like take care of that place. Mm-hmm. And so I bet all of those places really think about how the community engages with it. Yeah. And yeah. that's a really good point. Like we, I don't know. I think about the fact that we put these buildings into the world so much. And do we really think about how they're going to be um, leaving it? What's their impact in 10 years, 20 years? And it's so all these things, I think are so interconnected, like sustainability and preservation and community engagement. Because like if you if you have that engagement and that sense of ownership in a community, then there's a social sustainability to it. And that means it will be maintained the preservation of it doesn't have to happen as like a panicked, like, oh my God, this thing is falling apart. We have to tear it down or, you know, it's just, and then that's obviously much better for the environment. So it's sort of all. It's funny you say that because we just had this question the other day, we were giving a presentation and someone asked how our project was sustainable. And one of our senior designers answered the question so well, because I think in out in the world right now, what people think of as sustainable are these sort of key points of like materiality um, measures that you're uh, following and different things like that. But to me, and what we're saying here is, and what you're saying, I think is so true is there's so much more to what's sustainable about architecture. Mm -hmm. Architecture is sustainable because, or should be sustainable because it's community oriented. It talks, it, it helps with social justice issues. It helps make people feel like they belong. Mm-hmm. It helps make the community want to bring more architecture to that specific site. That to me is sustainable, right? Yeah. That's what sustainability should be about. Yes, materials matter. Yes, all these other factors, you know, green design matters. All these other factors matter. But sustainability past the building envelope is yeah. what's really 
going to keep a building alive and keep it um, part of the community, which is not something we typically think of, I think. And you do. <laughs> we don't all every day in, the, in, in our environment. So yeah. it's an eye opener. And I think there's all these, I mean, in my mind, there's all these like interrelated kind of conversations about this, like in, you know, um, like discourses of care, basically, you know, in preservation and ecofeminism and which really are about appreciation for like the resources we have for like the people who are in a place, like how can you sort of sustain and nurture what's there instead of just replacing it and like wasting what we have. Um, I want to talk a little bit about ecofeminism and you kind of define yourself as a, a feminist based practice, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you kind of talk to us about what that means to you and how does that just sort of I guess, what's the lens you look through every day at your office because of that? Yeah. yeah. Um, so for me, it means so many different things. I think often when we think about feminism and architecture, um, it's a very kind of, um, it's about representation only, like just like how many women are in a firm or like how many yeah. women are licensed. And it is generally focused more on like cis women, I think. Um, but to me, feminism is it can change like every scale of the built environment and every part of the process of how we work. Um, so if we think about like the scale of cities, so someone like Dolores Hayden wrote amazingly about how, you know, how we think about infrastructure and planning and housing in a way that it can support people with children. It can sort of have built-in childcare it can create like proximities between um, daily needs like grocery stores or laundry mats or whatever and housing. It can offer places for employment. We can think about things like housing also as these like economic structures where people can, people can, um, you know, have almost a bartering system between each other of like sharing childcare, you know, sharing part-time employment um, that basically like, we can think of planning our cities in a way that it supports people who are parents in particular, and also can create communities that would support people who are working, but might need, you know, a sense of uh, a network that can help them in their lives. So that's one example at the scale of, you know, thinking through planning in cities. Um, there's also attention to, um, like gender specific spaces. So how do you create safe spaces, um, spaces that are, you know, truly inclusive for people who are non-binary, trans women, um, people who are part of the LGBTQ plus community. Like there's attention to things like sight lines, escape paths, uh, lighting, sound all of these things can have a really big difference in like how safe people feel like in public spaces um and then i think it's interesting to think about these more abstract things well i mean they're very tangible but things like materials like how are materials how do they have different cultural associations that are actually gender okay. and how can we kind of play with that um so i was talking earlier about textiles um being one of those things that you know, it's historically gendered. Um, and I think I try to avoid any like reductive, 
you know, essentializing like oh, all soft things are feminine or something. Yes, I just yeah. don't think it's true, but I do think it's fun. Anything with a woven pattern. <laughs> right. But I think it's kind of fun to mess with our expectations for yeah. what materials can be in different settings and, you know, and how that actually makes it often more inviting to like a wider spectrum of people. Um, this is something I talk with my students about a lot. Like we'll sit in a classroom at Columbia and they'll be like, I hate this room. This room is like cold and sterile and really alienating. Columbia is like, not alone in that. Like, do we have any <laughs> nice lecture spaces in a college? I'd love an example. Yeah, Someone. it's a standard classroom problem, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm like, well, what can we do to change it? Like, what would you change if you could? And the things that they imagine are wildly different than the like standard classroom. And often they're really imagining very different material palettes than what's allowed typically. And often things that are soft and strange and like much more about engagement with bodies, like a sort of intimacy almost with, with materials so that you're lounging, you're, you're lying down, you're playing. I was just about to say my confirmation class at my synagogue. I remember everyone wanted to be in the, conf it was like 10th grade was your confirmation class. And that was the last year you had Sunday school, right? Uh -huh. But this, the confirmation class classroom had only couches uh -huh. and all the other classrooms had tables and chairs, typical, very classroom, very normal classroom setup. And we had couches and everybody, if you ever had free time and the confirmation class wasn't in there, you'd go sit in there like it was a lounge and we'd all want to hang out. And then the confirmation yeah. class would come back and be like, oh, no, 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 we got to get out. And then <laughs> we finally made it to confirmation. You were like, oh. we made it to the room where we can sit on couches and listen to our teacher or rabbi or whoever it was. Yeah. And it's so interesting that you say that because. That was like the classroom everyone wanted to be in. We right. were engaged. We hung out. A couple of us sat on each couch. Like we had beanbag chairs. We It was just a totally different kind of environment. And I don't know why someone thought that the confirmation class just deserved that only or why we they had how they had thought of it. But it's so interesting that you say yeah. that. It just dawned on me when you said, I was like, that's a perfect example. Yeah. We used to like, that room was like the holy grail for pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But and I mean, that interesting. You if you put beanbag chairs in a room it's and you release young people, like it's amazing to see the way that they interact with them. It's and, a magnet. Yeah. 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 And there's something really like visceral, physical, you know, immediate about what materials mean in those situations. And that's just like not a level of experience that I think um, architects often are allowed to play with or let themselves play with or something, you know, there's this yeah. much more distanced relationship to materials. Um, and I do think that's very interesting. I mean, how we talk about safety a lot on this podcast, because how mm -hmm. someone makes you feel, how safe they make you feel. It's a really big part of like trust and how well you work together and all the, I mean, it's interconnects in all these um, really complex ways. And I think that the way, at least what I'm hearing is the way that you think of your office is this safe space that it, you know, whether that means materials, the environment, the walls, the app, the, what people are saying, mm -hmm. what you're working on. Mm -hmm. It seems like you want an environment, no matter who you are, to feel safe. And that to me is feminism at its core, right? Like yeah. we're all about, um, 
I don't, I, there's no better way to say this than that women really care about how safe and how comforting something feels, right? And so if you make a space that feels like that warm hug of a, of a mom or a sister, like, you know what I mean? It, it yeah. sounds silly, but I mean, there's something very comforting about that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I'm sorry, you're kind. We don't always think of it, you know, even just like the way I think of like an open stair that I have to walk up with a skirt, right? right? That makes me feel, but th- it's not something that typically most people are thinking about. Even a woman, if she's designing the space, you have to really kind of like think about how you would interact with that stair. But I can think of three different architecture firms off the top of my head that I've gone to, including my old firm where like the stair was wide open. And if I was wearing a skirt that day, I wasn't going that route, you know? Just, <laughs> yeah. Um, so we don't think of it a lot. We don't think yeah. of how we experience a space. Well, and I think you're making a really good point about like the space of the practice itself, you know, because I think like there's, there's all these issues you can address when you're looking outward, when you're mm-hmm. working as an architect in the world and you're asked to create like a park or a building or whatever. Um, and those are some of the things I was just talking about, but then the issue of like, how do you make a practice that is feminist? Um, I think it brings all of those spa- spatial questions in, but then also um, both in the practice and outside, I think there's all these interpersonal questions. Like you're talking about safety and trust. I think there's a um, there's this incredible long lineage of, of feminist practices that doesn't really get talked about, but has been going on for like decades. And they've been these experiments in how to create truly collaborative, egalitarian, like non-hierarchical supportive practices where people- I'm glad you brought that up. I was just about to ask you about (laughs) (laughs) You segued perfectly. Perfect. Um, Yeah. And I think that's, it's a really powerful thing to have in your creative space and then it's an amazing thing to then take out into the world and like to use as a model for working with communities. Um, so I think that's actually the frame that, you know, I I aspire, I hope, <laughs> like influences the way that I would work with people on projects in the world is like, how do we build this collaborative experience where everyone's voice is important and um, we're learning from everyone that it's really like, recognizing the value of lived experience coming from so many different places and perspectives. If you were giving advice to someone in an office space or in their own environment of how to sort of peel away at these layers of hierarchy, what is that like mm-hmm. a <laughs> quick tip, <laughs> hierarchy for <laughs> non-hierarchical spaces for dummies? <laughs> I love that. That should be a book. Um, what, what are, what's some advice you would give us? Well, you know, I think it's actually the same inside the office and then like with design projects in the world, I feel like it's basically like just make space to ask people what they want and need. And that can be like in any context, like what do they, what do they think should happen with a project? What do they want and need like from their HR experience? Like, are they getting like the kind of health coverage they need, the, you know, vacation, the maternity leave, like all that stuff um like from team dynamics like is this working for people is the communication what they need you know it just it could go on and on um but I think such a good point it just values more perspectives than whoever's leading the thing and I think and I don't want to speak for all of us but I think as humans we tend to take the easier route sometimes and so not asking those questions makes the day 
a lot easier, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because if I'm not asking you what's going to make you more comfortable or what should we do about that, then I don't have to adjust, right? Right. But actually taking the time to go, hey, what's going to work in this project that makes you feel the most comfortable? Mm-hmm. Hey, what do you feel? How engaged do you want to be in this particular process? Whether it's zoning or concept or, you know, research or whatever, um, asking the questions is I think sometimes people don't do it because I think that it takes another step. I think that, you know, it's, it's typically going to make, create more work for you, right? Like it's because we all create more work. If we start to ask people what they need and listen, it's just another step, but in a good way it can make, but in the end, I think less work. Right. right. People care and they're invested. Because, because in then everybody's invested. Everybody's working towards the same goal. Everybody's engaged. Yeah. But taking the time to really, it's such a good point. Something and it's so also simple, vulnerable. just asking. Yeah. Yeah. It's vulnerable because you might hear stuff that you don't want to hear. Right. And that's like, that's tough. There's um, a couple of layers to it for sure. Yeah. I think, and I think from a leadership perspective, I think that that is exactly what it is that it, you know, that's it's that level of self-evaluation and mm-hmm. firm evaluation or office evaluation or environment, whatever it may be, but where yeah. you kind of have to take a step back and, and go, okay, wait, how did, I, how did we make this, someone feel this way? What mm-hmm. can we do to change it and sort of evaluate? You have to kind of always evaluate in the process, yeah. how you can make it better. That's such yeah. a good point. Um, do you have any really good advice for someone that's thinking about sort of starting in architecture. I think you, especially from you, I like that question because you didn't sort of navigate architecture normally, you know, like you, you know, you didn't, you didn't think you'd be here, which is one part of it. And then the (laughs) other aspect is the way you look at architecture is so different. So do you have any advice for someone looking to start school in architecture or either coming out of how they should sort of think about this sort of art and design environment? Yeah. I mean, I think what I wish I had heard when I was young was that there's so many different things you can do with an architecture degree. And there's so many ways you can be involved in the built environment that are not always visible when you're in school or, you know, when you're um, looking at like magazines of, of, you know, famous architects, like there's, um, there's just such a huge range of design careers and um I think I learned that years later after you know after graduating and um I mean a friend of mine Justin Garrett Moore he he worked for many years in the public design commission at uh in New York City and um you know he always pointed to the fact that like there are thousands of architects and landscape architects who work for the for New York City for the government creating public spaces and they're like never sort of recognized um and that kind of career path also isn't even told to to students usually even though it's like very well paying good benefits like reasonable hours all this stuff and so there's this sort of singular star architect you took the word out of my mouth we <laughs> learn about in school we learn about the star architect and that's the path right to work yeah. for the the biggest and greatest architect that has pretty pictures in a, a magazine. Yeah. And that's yeah. what architecture is supposed to be. And it's really, you don't see anything past that. Right. And there's so much more. And I think there's so many people doing really meaningful, like profound work that um, isn't as publicly visible. Mm-hmm. And, but my students who graduate and they look for that, they always end up finding 
places to work. Like, I just think there's so many more practices doing, for example, like community-based design. There's a lot out there. And um, so I just think it's a particularly good time <laughs> it is. to go to school and graduate and like pursue those kinds of interests. I think that's such a good point that, you know, learning from a professor like you gives you the opportunity to understand there's so much more out there. And if you're looking for it, you're yeah. a lot more likely to be finding it than by accidentally falling uh, amongst it. You know, I mean, that can happen. Mm -hmm. But um, if you know what you want to look for, then chances are you will find it. Or you'll yeah. keep pursuing it until you do find it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a good point that um, I love that you're one of our, you know, our last episode, that this is going to be sort of the cherry on top to this whole whole, whole um, sort of podcast is that you know, thank you for showing us that architecture can be whatever you want it to be and you can be whatever you want to be in architecture because I think that, you know, I came from a very, you know, I went to work for a big firm. Now I work for SB, which is a smaller firm, but I still am sort of the, the path that you would typically see aside from these things that I like to do that I get mm -hmm. pulled into doing because myself and Ashley were passionate about learning about everything else out there. But um, it's people like you that inspire us to do more, right? And you inspire us to to come into architecture, to make architecture what you want it to be. I mean, you really have created a whole new avenue of architecture um, that no one defined for you. No one told you, hey, you should study textiles and how that <laughs> will affect an environment and then see if people will engage with it. And maybe they will, maybe they won't. But why don't you go study that? No one told you that, right? Like, and so- that's what's so amazing about you. So I'm really, really thankful um, you took the time to come talk to us about it and just let us know that, I mean, it really, architecture really, really can be whatever you want it to be. You, yeah. cheesy as it sounds, you can be whatever you want to be. Go, go think about politics and go to school for that first if you need to, or right. do political science and think about social justice issues and think about art and design and how do you engage all of those things together because- you can, you can create a, an entire firm around it and nobody ever faltered or altered the way you thought about architecture. So I think that's beautiful. That's, that's, I, I really you. do. That's so generous. <laughs> I very, you know, very lovely to hear. Um, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I will say that like when, when young folks are blazing their own trails, it is hard, you know, and there is a lot of resistance. And so it takes this sort of perseverance to think it's worth it's worth dealing with resistance and people telling you it's not viable and you know that there's no future in what you're interested in um you have to kind of keep finding that inner yeah inner strength and sometimes you get caught up in the daily deadline but like yeah. you know a lot I think I try to do this at least as I've gotten older it's becoming more clear to me like at the end of the day, I still want to be doing something I'm passionate about. So it doesn't matter in what form that may be, but am I going to work every day and doing something that makes me happy to get up and do? Is it yeah. making me feel passionate? Is it is it making me feel like I'm I'm serving a greater purpose? Like I think it always goes back to that. Like, what is my greater purpose? So it's just like constantly kind of reminding yourself because otherwise we get caught up in every day, like, you know, family, home, meals, bills, deadlines it just kind of can swallow you if you don't take the step back yeah absolutely um how do you sort of I'll ask as your final questions how do you sort of balance your family life and 
um, sort of work-life balance? Do you feel like you're in a groove you like? Are you still working on it? I know I always <laughs> am. What do you, what's like your home base as far as like, do you have an outside hobby that sort of keeps you grounded? You know, what, what are you mm -hmm. outside of these things? Yeah, it's definitely a work in progress. <laughs> Same. Um, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I'm lucky to have a partner who is not in architecture. Yeah. And so, you know, works like nine to five and gets home at five and is, or, you know, six or something. And it's like, okay, time to hang out. <laughs> so it's like helpful to have a normalizing influence. To so I don't work too much. Because we're not yeah. good at disconnecting. I think that's exactly. across the board. Yeah. Um, but I think there's things that I know are really regenerating for me. So I love to go, I live near Prospect Park in Brooklyn, like walking in the woods is my favorite thing. And if I can just do that, everything feels right in the world, um, even if it's not. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I try to work that in as much as I can. And then I try to make time for, for really just making something with my hands even if it's like half an hour, there's, it's such a different headspace, like to get in the flow. And for me, it's something with textiles, like I'll try some weird new weaving thing or like a different material. And um, it's just a form of creativity that feels really precious and is so different from making something with a lot of people. We're like coordinating a lot of moving parts and the end goal is like years away. <laughs> so um, I try to build that in. And the more I do, the better I I usually feel. I but. I agree. I think those things that we tap into like remind us of who we are, you know, like because mm -hmm. you just like something you love as a child, you know? So you like yeah. go back to this innocent place of where I only thought about this thing right in front of me and it made me feel really good. And no matter how old I am or how much is going on, if I pull out an oil painting, oil paints or my sewing machine, for instance, I taught yeah. myself how to sew, sew during COVID. Cause I was like, amazing. I got to do something. I got <laughs> to move my hands in a different way than in this house with this <laughs> laptop help. So, I mean, it's silly. I sew like things like little small things for my baby now, or like small little bandanas for my dogs. It's silly Aww. and stupid, but again, it so keeps cute. me like, it's fun to go pick out some fabrics or do different things that yeah. So I, but I think it's also funny. My husband can always tell if I've been like stressed for a couple of weeks. Cause I'll literally all of a sudden he'll see a canvas get pulled out and a bunch of paints and a bunch <laughs> of stuff. And he's like, you're all right. And I'm like, I'm about to be, I'm about to be all right. <laughs> exactly. It resets, it, it resets you. That's such yeah. a good point. Yeah. So important. You've inspired me though, to get into some more creative ways of using textiles. Things. Like my grandmother, my, my mom were always really good with that kind of stuff. They do cross stitching. They do needle point they knew all these really cool things and oh, i nice. haven't i haven't taken the time to do it. i need to go figure it out and maybe well, in a totally different way it's so cool that's awesome that's something i, I love and i haven't done in years i haven't done it a lot lately but my sister is you know you're on the list of like i gave one sister a painting so now i know <laughs> <laughs> i'm on the books and she's gonna hear this because she always listens and scarlet i know you're on, i'm on the books i owe you a <laughs> Um, but I do love doing it. So that's really um, funny. But thank you for reminding us. It's just going on walks too. Oh man, yeah. I love a good walk. Yeah. How much a walk can just change your entire perspective of a day? I'm not sure how that yeah. the brain chemistry works in there, but it works out. <laughs> and you know, it's like a whole day can just feel so much better after a nice walk. Yeah, so true. 
Well, thank you so, so much again for just sharing, you know, who you are and a little bit about yourself.